25 years old, who gave what one magazine called the worst Father's Day gift ever. Nina Gronlund, uh, a Norwegian, uh, posted an internet ad about her father. He had moved in uh, at age 52, and she grew weary of his presence. And the ad stated, giving away my dad to a nice woman in Trondheim. Dad is tall, dark, and slim in his best age. I'm tired of having him live with me. Furniture comes with him. Serious. Don't any of you children get any ideas. But she was uh, weary of his presence. No one who's ever walked humbly with God has ever grown tired of him. Now note the qualifiers. There are some that have become tired of the Christian faith and all but not very humble in doing so. But no one who's ever walked humbly with God has ever grown tired of him. His presence isn't given to fatiguing people of his presence. In fact, they want more of him and not less. When someone walks with God in his presence, there's some remarkable uh, qualities that uh, they possess and skills. They have victory, and they have victory over temptation. They gain insight and direction into their lives, their problems, their decisions. They have fullness of joy. They exalt. They exalt in worship and devotion. They manifest or display the life of Christ. They set their minds on things above and they, they draw and they impact lost people. You would think that God was walking with them and He does walk with them. Now, when these prospects of having this kind of life, walking in the presence of God, comes to some Christians, it startles them and terrifies them, and there are some that run. I have been in worship services where the presence of God was so heavy in the place that people have gotten up out of the service and left and departed. Uh, you wonder sometimes why it is more people may not attend evening services and activities on a regular basis because, frankly, all they can stand is a Sunday morning, many of them. Now, there's some providential hindrances with some, so I don't mean to comment on all. But some, they couldn't stand anymore without a radical life change. And that's the way it is with some. Others have gotten to the presence of God and fell under so much conviction in His presence that in one service... Manly Beasley was preaching, an usher dropped an offering plate, and the man got saved. It startled him and moved him. The dropping of an offering plate, long before the sermon ever arrived in that service. When Israel had sinned with the golden calf in Exodus 32, Moses could have run away from Israel. In fact, with divine sanction. In verse number 10, Now therefore let me alone, the Lord said, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And I will make of you, Moses, a great nation. Circumstances that tempt us to run, however, can provide, can provide the seedbed for more of God's presence. And that is something that, to which we've got to clutch. There will always be circumstances consistently, almost relentlessly, that will interfere with our ordinary walk in life 
that will tempt us to run from God, but it is those very circumstances that become the seedbed, the opportunity for a more compelling and powerful and growing walk with God. So how can I keep uh, my circumstances from causing me to run from God's presence? Well, there are several things that arise from the text. And one is, consider the people that would be affected by your decision to run from God. In verses 11 and 12, that's precisely what Moses does. And he considers two groups of people. Moses pleaded with the Lord as God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? The implication is, God, if you can bring them out because you have great power and a mighty hand, then certainly you can bring them in. And people will doubt you if you don't. So he's considering Israel. He's considering the Lord. Then verse 12, why should the Egyptians speak and say, well, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? In other words, the Egyptians will not trust you. Now, you've got to understand, Egypt does not disappear from the pages of Scripture after Exodus. Egypt is still a prominent player throughout the balance of the Old Testament. And there are prophecies that go into the last days that deal with Egypt. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the other prophets will address Egypt. And so the biblical authors, especially in the Old Testament, are very concerned about how Egypt will view God because of Israel. So Moses doesn't run and urge God to eliminate Israel and make of him a great nation. He doesn't take the offer in verse 10. He doesn't run because he's contemplating God's reputation, his glory, his honor. He's contemplating Israel. He's contemplating Egypt as well. He is thinking of them. He did not consider his happiness. He did not consider his prospects and fortunes. He did not consider his peace of mind. Now, he could have reasoned, I have lived two-thirds of my life with these people, and this is all they do? There's no hope for change amongst them in the future. I'm cutting. I'm running. I can't live the rest of my life with these stiff-necked rebels. But that's not what Moses did. Moses thought of them, of God's glory and of Egypt. He was not like Achan. Joshua chapter 6, God commanded Israel to ban and eliminate every living and non-living thing from Jericho. But Achan had a better idea, and that is he took some of the spoil and hid it in his tent with the knowledge of his family. And Israel then had sin in the camp unbeknownst to anyone but Achan. And they went after Ai in the next chapter in Joshua 7. And God's hand was not with them. And Ai, a much smaller village, defeated Israel. And 36 families lost their daddies that day. 36 warriors in Israel were killed that day. In other words, Achan was only thinking of himself. He wasn't thinking of the rest of Israel. Listen to me carefully. We never sin in isolation. We never, we never, we never run from God in His holiness in isolation. It will always affect someone else. And F.B. Meyer said this. He said, no one of us stands alone. We cannot sin without insensibly affecting the spiritual condition of all of our fellows. 
we cannot grow cold without lowering the temperature of all contagious hearts. We cannot pass upward without lifting others, on the other hand. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself, out of Romans 14. So if you're tempted to run away, consider the people. If you're tempted to run from God's presence, in other words, it's just too much for you, I want to encourage you to think different. Consider the people it may affect. Consider the spouse who has a soul. Consider the children who have a soul. Consider parents. Consider lost people at work and in the neighborhood who count on you for a godly witness. And and you're probably about the only one in your neighborhood. There aren't many more. And if you fall, they will notice. Consider members of your church, friends, students, and others. It, It is more difficult to make the mistake of running and other sins when you first think of other people. And that's why Paul said what he said in Philippians 2, Uh, verses 1 through 5. If there's any consolation in Christ, any affection of His love, any consolation, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, united in the same purpose and in the same love. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility of mind, let each of you regard others, watch this, as more important than himself. Not equal importance. Consider others more important than yourselves. Let this mind or attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery to maintain equality with God, but became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee on earth Uh, above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth, shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen to me. God has something better in mind than running. And you've got to endure the circumstance until He brings it about. So it's more difficult to make that mistake when you first consider others. Now, please, if you're going to run, just admit it. Don't get hyper-spiritual about it. People have a way, especially church people, of spiritualizing disobedience. In fact, they may be the genetic descendants of Israel's first king, Saul. He was to ban the Amalekites. He didn't. He kept Agag, and apparently some of Agag's family uh, escaped. And five centuries later, what were his descendants doing in Persia? Who was one of King Agag's descendants? Haman. That's right. And what did Haman do? He attempted to exterminate the Jews. So because Saul did not exterminate all the Amalekites, nearly all the Jews were exterminated five centuries later. The things we do can live for centuries afterwards. And Saul rationalized his disobedience to God. He got spiritual about it. He offered God a spiritual substitute. You see, uh, Samuel came to him and confronted him and said, you didn't eliminate everything from the Amalekites. And he said, well, I've, I've, you know, and Samuel asked, well, what, what are these, what's the bleeding of these sheep and these flocks? He said, oh, that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to take that and offer it to the Lord in a sacrifice. You know, we, we didn't need to eliminate that. But that was the word of God from the prophet. 
You know, everybody knows how to do things better than the prophet does. And Saul was one of those. And so uh, he ended up offering a spiritual substitute and giving it to God, and God would have none of it. And it was at that moment God cut off the family of Saul. And Saul's descendants would not occupy the throne. He would remove Saul from any royal consideration, and all of his descendants, including, including the godly Jonathan, and set them all aside and find a new family headed by a man who was after God's own heart, who would do what God said and not offer these silly spiritual substitutes. And so uh, that's the first thing. You need to consider the people that are involved. Saul messed up, and so he ruined Jonathan's opportunities. Second, consider the promises available for your decision. Uh, to to uh, Consider the promises that God has made available. In verse number 13, look what he says. Uh, and and look, pay careful attention to the language that's used here. Uh, you will find this language prior to this text uh, going back further. Uh, remember, Moses prays, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, quote, now Moses is quoting scripture to God in his prayer, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven." And all this land that I have spoken of, I have given to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from harm, which he said he would do to his people. You, you may not recognize here, and it may not be quite obvious to you as a 21st century reader, but what Moses is doing is that he's returning to the promise of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom he calls Israel here. He's quoting Genesis 12, 7, 13, 15, 15, 7, and 18, 22, 17, 26, 4, 35, 11, and 12 is what he's quoting. He's going back to the promises of the Word of God. And he's reminding God, God, you have promised to come through. And you knew, go oh God, what you were getting into with this bunch. You know what you're getting into. And I'm pleading with you to come through with this promise. So the Israelites should have done the same. They should have gone back to God's word too. Now, when we're tempted to run, you need to understand this temptation may be accompanied by two other temptations. One is the temptation to elevate human reasoning. Usually this is accompanied by reasonable expectations based on experience, based on community, based on popularity, based on the usual experience of other people's lives about what will happen in the future in order to rationalize behavior or justify disobedience. And we've got to be extremely careful about this. You know, we complain sometimes that teenagers submit to peer pressure. Hey, I got news for you. Everybody does that with peer pressure. May I say to you, I had a great example of this, a very positive example of the opposite actually in one church I served. Uh, Andy Waldrop had a printing company in Columbus, Georgia, a small business and stayed very busy, published all the, uh, the books. Um, I, I, they're like a yearbook for the military for Fort Benning soldiers and uh, a variety of other publications. He also had season tickets to every Alabama home game. And Andy would uh, take off on Saturday and he and his family would go watch Alabama and they would drive home every evening to get back and Andy 
in all the years as a church member and deacon never missed one service because he uh, was at an Alabama game and was just too tired to show up. In fact, Andy said one time, he said, if I'm ever tempted to do that, I'll give up the season tickets. Friends, that's not what most people do. My goodness, you can't get them to get to church on Sunday morning if the game's in town. You see, you give up the season tickets. It isn't that important. But see, everybody else does it, and we rationalize that. We had one organist at uh, King Street, South Carolina, when I pastored there, who had a beach house. And they owned it, been in the family for half a century. And they would go on the weekends, but she would always make sure she was back Saturday night so she could play the organ on Sunday morning. And in 50 years, did not miss one Sunday. In 50 years. Now, I think she could have taken a vacation, but she didn't. She just wasn't going to do it. All right? So everyone else would have done it. They would have made an excuse, laid out of church. In other words, they would have laid out of the simplest expression of devotion to God and that that's what people will do. What about the more difficult things that we engage in to exalt Christ? You see, human reasoning will have a way of overtaking the clear and express intentional command of Almighty God. So the temptation to elevate human reasoning. But then there's the temptation to eliminate God's Word. People who want to run often have a devotional life that is in decline. Because the Scripture prods them and the Scripture provokes them in the right direction and they've decided what they're going to do and they can't stand it. I've had that as an experience a number of times. People will come in for counsel and what they'll want me to do is confirm what they've already decided to do. They're not seeking God's wisdom. They've already made up their mind and they're just trying to get a religious authority figure to confirm what they're doing. You see, instead of looking to the Word, frankly, God's already answered their question in His Word. So consequently, people who want to run are often more attuned to their problems than they are the promises of God. In other words, the problem is right here. They come up with human reasoning and a way to solve the problem instead of looking to God's Word and expecting God and trusting God to intervene and to change circumstances. Because that's just not normal and natural. They'll say, you don't understand my problem as if some of us have never suffered ourselves. So a promise from God... Let me remind you, a promise from God is more powerful than any problem you face, and a promise from God is more certain than any excuse that we can make. Coming, asking God to come through with this promise. So a great skill that Christians need to develop is learning how to collect the promises of God. And there are four steps, uh, four elements of doing that at least. Number one, identify the promises. Know the promises of God in His Word. You may want to take a highlighter in your Bible as you read through it. Mark them and return to them often in your prayer time. Use a Bible promise book if necessary. Second, study the promise. Make sure you know what it means and that it's for you. God's promise, and you'll be grateful, most of you will be grateful for this, God's promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a baby at 190 years old is probably not for you. Okay? Just, a real, just take a real obvious example. All right? Uh, that, that promise isn't for you. But there are certainly loads of other precious promises that God has given that are for you, and you need to uh, be made aware of those. Now, that promise to Abraham and Sarah, while that specific promise of having a child in their old age may not be for you, the God who made it is for you. 
So that may not be a specific promise for you in your circumstance, but there's a specific God who will walk with you through that. And he's the God that starts nations through those who are 190 years old. Have you ever contemplated, Sarah, if she were around today, if that promise were fulfilled today? I mean, she, she'd mosey up to the emergency room with a walker. And they would ask, who are you here to see? And she would say, nobody. Well, what do you need? She said, I need some medical attention. I'm going to have a baby. Imagine that. That's exactly the scene that you've got, uh, or similar to the scene that you have uh, in the um, uh, the 15th century B.C. So study the promise. Then trust the promise. Have more confidence in the promise than you do the deposit of a check in a bank. And then finally collect the promise. Come before God and remind Him as Moses did in verse number 13. God, you made this promise. You've, you've placed your name behind it. You've always honored your name. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. In fact, you can surprise me and everyone around me and how you do it. But please, oh God, just come through. And I'm asking you to do so. And with your status as a child of God, if you know Jesus, you can do that. You're invited to do that. Third, consider the problems ag- aggravated by your decision to run. Now, verses 15 to 19 there were some problems that arose that Moses could have aggravated had he run. And in this uh, interaction with God and Israel, he made several discoveries. He made several discoveries about his own nature and heart. Verse 19, So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Moses lost his temper and did something God never said do, and that is he broke, physically, the tablets of the commandments. Later he'd have to etch them in stone, so they'd be a little more permanent, so he didn't wreck them again. But uh, he discovered something about his anger. So he had a problem with it, and it surfaced in the incident with the golden calf. Then he discovered something about his brother. Verse 24. Well, actually, let's, um, let's go back to verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Well, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us a God to go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And I said to them, Well, whoever's got any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Now, Aaron wasn't really thinking very carefully here, was he? He had a whole nation witness what he did back in verse number 4, and he's lying between his teeth. And he's in the ministry. Look at verse 4, what he really did. And he received, Aaron, the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. He didn't just throw it in there and shazam, it comes out as a golden calf. He fashioned it that way. He got intensely involved with the building of the golden calf. So he learned that Aaron was fickle. Then he discovered something about his own tribe, the Levites, in verse 26. It says here, well, let's begin in verse 25. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron hadn't restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. It's one of the biblical reasons I offer an altar call, public invitation that way. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. 
So the nation's unrestrained. It's not the popular thing to stand with Moses. He's pretty ticked at this moment, and the Levites stand with him anyway. Most problems do not improve when we run. In fact, Tom Eliff said, In all likelihood, you will discover these same problems will be packed away in your suitcase where you go. Your problem may not pertain to external geography, but rather to internal geography. You know, the grass is greener on the other side, but that's usually on top of a septic tank. Amen? Problems do not always mean others need to change. Sometimes problems mean that we need to change. And so running from problems instead of solving them aggravates and exacerbates them because running creates new circumstances and new relationships and new challenges. And with new circumstance, new relationships and new challenges, what comes with that? Stress, anxiety, and tension. Even positive stress, positive anxiety, positive tension. Well, that exhausts the human person and the central nervous system. And so you still have the problem with increased tension, anxiety, and stress. Happens every time. And that's one of the simple reasons why problems don't solve themselves when you attempt to escape them and run from them. So if you cannot solve the problems you have where you are, it's unlikely that you will solve them someplace else, in another marriage, in another church, in another job necessarily. There are some exceptions to this. There are some places that are unworthy. I understand that. But what most of our problems reveal is not a need to change locations, but to change hearts. And that may be why God has placed you in that circumstance. It could be that the problem is a tool God is using to move you into his presence. Because without some stress, tension, and anxiety, you may not seek him. Anyway, now few in America would ever view persecution as a positive thing. It's really interesting how those that endure persecution view it. And those of us who don't, how we view it. Usually we're horrified by the notion, begin to doubt God. Those going through persecution for Christ's sake, oftentimes are the exact opposite. Um, One pastor enduring persecution in Sri Lanka said this, sometimes persecution is the best thing that could have happened to us. We in Sri Lanka, Christians in Sri Lanka, are on the edge of what God is doing. So don't pray that we won't have persecution. In other words, don't pray for the end of our persecution. It would never occur to me to do anything but pray for that. But he's asking, don't pray for the end of our persecution. Instead, pray that God will keep us strong and faithful in the midst of persecution. He sees trouble and difficulty not as something to escape, but as the environment where God can get the most glory. And in the distance, I hear Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego agreeing with him. Don't you? Bill Elliff then said, If you're content to live without the manifest presence of God, you will. And the reason sometimes we don't have more of the manifest presence of God is that indeed we are content to live without it. Sometimes it's because we don't want to be seen as weird. Sometimes it's because we're afraid of what other people will think of us. 
Sometimes our hearts are set on something else. Sometimes we since we've got other priorities. J. Oswald Sanders, though, said this, both scripture and experience teach us, now watch this, this is stunning, that it is we, not God, who determine the degree of intimacy with him that we enjoy. We determine that. We are at this moment as close to God as we really choose to be. I mean, God has made a promise that is a standing promise. James 4, 8, draw near to God, and what? He will draw near to you. And so what God has done is that God has provided for every one of his children to be real close to him by the, by the death of his son. All that's necessary on the divine side is accomplished, and it's been finished for two millenniums. There is nothing else the deity has to do. It's already been done. He's taken care of his part. We get close to him then to the degree that we choose to get close to him. So where we are with God today is an accumulation of all the choices we have made prior to this moment. Now, don't, don't let that beat you down. If it needs to, go ahead. But let that lift you up. You see, you don't have to wait for God or anyone else to change to walk up next to the precious bleeding side. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait. You can walk with your king as he intended for you to do the day he put you on this earth and the day he put humanity on this earth in the Garden of Eden. In other words, life can be repetition of the Garden of Eden experience and it can be a preview of of what we'll experience in the new heaven and the new earth when the tabernacle of God will be with men. What a marvelous thing. God promises. So we're just as close to God as we choose to be. And where we are today is an accumulation of all the choices we have made at this point. So when God gets near, don't run. Don't ignore it. Don't dismiss Him. Don't dismiss it as merely just intensified religious interest grab hold of all of God that you can now while he is near decide not to run but enter the invitation to walk in his presence let your song be where he leads me I will follow and as some of our missionaries sing what he feeds me I will swallow whatever he brings my way whatever he brings let problems and challenges be the seedbed of the tool God uses to move me closer to Him. Or footprints of Jesus that make the pathway glow. We will follow the steps of Jesus wherever they go. Don't run from Him. Run to Him. And you'll be happy that you did. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We praise Your name and exalt You. We praise you that as you have considered your walk with sinners, you thought of the people affected by your holiness and your love. And you decided to give your son for us. We pray, O oh God, that we would have the same compassion and the same heart for people in our lives and that that would move us not to run from your presence. We pray that, O oh God, we'd always consider your promises and Thank you, God, that you are able 
to make great and precious promises by which we escape the lust that's in the world by the flesh, by which we obtain abundant life. We thank you that you can make promises like this because, God, you are the master and Lord over every detail of the future. You are king of everything that is not yet. And you rule the not yet as if it is, as if it is real. And your will for the future is so certain, it's as if it's in the past tense, and we can speak of it in the past tense as if it's already accomplished, even though it's future. Because you are Lord and Master of all, even our tomorrows. And I pray, O God, that you would press upon us this discipline of collecting on your promises, trusting you, and really believing you love us enough and you're faithful to your son's name and your people and your cause that we can count on you to come through. And then, Lord, we, we want to thank you that you're also master over all of our sorrows, all of our hearts, and you're able to use every one of them as a tool to build a life that magnifies Jesus just as builders use tools to build homes and buildings. You're not intimidated by any of them. You're not panicked. You certainly aren't surprised. And we bless you for that. And we want to pray, O oh God, that you would help us to cooperate and work with you on your crew in building a life that magnifies Jesus and gets closer and closer to you. Lord, in these coming days, help us to choose to be closer. And thank you that we can because the Savior has bled and he's alive forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Bless you.